Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the words will be up there on the screen in back of me. But we encourage you uh, to become a Bible reader and to uh, bring your own Bible with you to church. If you need help to find one, uh, talk to one of us pastors and to have a Bible in front of you as you uh, study through it with us, I think God will do great things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, Today we begin this new series called Living in the gray, living in the gray for the glory of God. In your bulletin, just want to point out one thing. You should have a paint swatch there. Uh, It looks like one anyway, and that's kind of a a bookmark for you. As we're going throughout this series, there are verses that you'll see that you can look up later on, and then on the back is kind of a theme verse uh, that we'll get to at the end of this message today. Uh, So, living in the gray. All of us know that there are some issues that are clearly black and white in Scripture. Uh, Just some negative examples, uh, we're told not to lie, right? Not to steal, not to murder, not to have sex before marriage. On the positive side of things, uh, we are to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves and to honor our father and mother. And so these these are clearly black and white, spelled out right in the Scriptures for us. And yet there are other issues that are not so clear. They're gray issues. They're neither commanded or condemned in the Bible. And so they become more complicated and controversial. So I'll just list some examples. Media, entertainment, choices of movies that you watch, TV shows, uh, dating, birth control, uh, Halloween, uh, drinking alcohol, Uh, Political positions and issues, smoking, tattoos, the list could go on. Uh, Lots of different uh, gray issues. We could could talk about a list uh, forever and ever. But what I want to do is ask this question. How do we navigate these gray issues? And how can we lovingly interact with those who have different convictions than we do? And I want to remind you that this new series is really part of a bigger series that we started all the way back in September. Uh, We called it Saints Together. We just sang uh, the theme song, Saints Together. And if you remember, uh, this was all about how we have been set apart. We as believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've been set apart. We We are saints, and we're to live this out together. We're to be distinctively different in this world as holy people living in unity, in love for one another. And so this current series now helps us to answer this question, well, what does that look like practically? How can we live as saints together in this world? How can we love one another in the gray? thought about this. Uh, Wouldn't it have been easier for us if God had just made everything clearly black and white? I mean, I mean why, did, why did he have to make things so messy by, by having all these gray areas? And, and think about that. If we, if we thought through that a little further, I think if everything were clearly black and white, it would either result in a rule-based religion 
or a free-for-all faith. Right? If everything was clearly laid out black and white, there are some of us who have the bent that, well, I'm, I'm going for it then. I am going to fulfill everything, and I'm going to live by the rules, rule-based religion. And some of you are still attempting to live that way, living by the law, that I am going to get it right. And so you pride yourself on your strict observance of God's word, and you have a tendency to look down on other people and to judge them that aren't living the way you are. On the flip side, some of us can look at a clearly black and white and say, well, there's no way I can live up to that, and, and so because of God's grace, I've got freedom, I can live however I want. It's, it's this grace that allows me to be forgiven, so it's a free-for-all kind of life. And surely God does not want us to go to either of those extremes. He has given us his scriptures that are clear and then he has not forgotten to give us direction in the gray areas. He simply wants us to live in this messiness of life, learning to love one another and learning to, to look at the scriptures together, to have our conscience be informed and shaped more and more by the scriptures, but to, to realize that's going to be a process to be more and more conformed to Jesus. And in that process, we learn what it looks like to love one another. And so with that in mind, let me read this text, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. This is the word of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me start with a context. This seems so foreign to us, right? Food offered to idols. This seems... So archaic, so Bible-ist that we're not sure what to do with it, right? It, it, it just doesn't seem like it, it corresponds with our own life. And, and yet what I want to say to you today, this is incredibly relevant. As we peel back the layers of this text, you're going to see how this applies to our lives today. But let me first explain what was going on in the city of Corinth. So if you're new with us, the city of Corinth was a huge, thriving city, it was a city known for its immorality and for its idolatry. Temples to false gods infiltrated this town. And so what was the common practice for those 
worshipers of these false Greek gods was to bring their sacrifices, their animal sacrifices, to these gods. And so what would happen is these temples were kind of uh, located in pretty close proximity to what was called the Agora, the marketplace where people would go to shop, all right? And, and, and in that marketplace, there was a place where you could buy meat. And so the people of Corinth were, were coming into the town, and they were to buy meat, and yet this meat, part of it had been used as a sacrifice to these idols. And so they're wondering, like, think about that for a minute. If this meat had been used in an idol, in an idolatry, in worship to a false deity, and then now it's being sold, like at your local Hy-Vee, would you, or Fairway, would you buy that meat? And so that was really the question that was kind of provoked here in the city of Corinth. Hey, are we okay in eating that meat that was once, part of it was offered to an idol? Should I eat that or should I not? And so they're, they're writing to Paul with this question. If you recall, Paul is answering uh, this letter that they had sent to him. He's now in Ephesus planting a church. Prior to this, he had gotten a written or a verbal report from Chloe's household. Now this is a letter he's received and he's writing to them in response. And he's wanting to, to remind them to be unified, to be saints together and to be distinctively different. And here, here he's fleshing that out and what it looks like with this particular issue. And so notice how he starts in verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So he starts with this whole phrase, all of us possess knowledge. This was probably a Corinthian quote during that time. And the knowledge that it's referring to, we're going to see in verse 4, is this whole understanding that God is one and that all other gods, all other idols are non-existence. They don't exist. And so he's saying that you have this knowledge, you possess this knowledge, and yet what, what are you doing with it? Where is this knowledge leading you? And notice he says, you possess this knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up. This knowledge is leading to pride, an inflated view of yourself. Later on, we're going to see much later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verse 4, this verse here in verses 4 and 5, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. A lot of times we hear 1 Corinthians 13 as a uh, a wedding, uh, you know, verses that you hear, but this is directed first and foremost to a church that was struggling with pride. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. And these Corinthians were being arrogant with this knowledge. In fact, let me show you kind of on this chart here uh, just how this knowledge was not leading to love. It was leading to pride. And so we start off here when we think about the knowledge that they had. They thought they were superior and they thought they were arrogant. So go ahead and show that on the screen there. So this knowledge was leading to, to pride for them. They were being puffed up in inflated view of themselves. Like we've got this knowledge and, and they were being arrogant with it. Which led them to then judge other people who didn't have this same knowledge. Which led then to destroying the faith of other weaker believers. 
as we're going to see. And Paul's giving somewhat of a mild rebuke as he begins here, and he's, he's saying, no, 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 this, this knowledge that you have ought to humble you. And so notice what he says here in verses 2 and 3, if anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So instead, this, this knowledge that you have is not so much something that you possess, like I've got this knowledge of God. It's more so that you are already known by God. God has set his love in knowing you first. He's referring to the electing love of God in salvation. It's amazing to think about none of us came to God because of our own knowledge, our own good works. God came first to us and saved us and knew us. In Amos 3, verse 2 It talks about being known by God before all the families of the earth. We are known by him. And so this knowledge of God leads to humility, all right? So instead of pride, being known by God, being loved by God should humble us. And in that humility, we ought to then love other people, which leads then to building them up in the faith instead of destroying their faith. And so Paul is is adamant that this true knowledge leads to love. True knowledge leads to love. And so now he's, he's, he's telling the Corinthians, with that in mind, with that in mind, this knowledge that leads to humility and love, I want you to take that with you into this whole situation with food being sacrificed to idols. Look at verses 4 to 6. So therefore, he says, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, one Father, from whom whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so basically to summarize... Those verses, Paul is saying, since idols don't exist, you have liberty to eat of that meat. He is saying that even though part of that meat was being used for an animal sacrifice and now it's being sold in the market, you have freedom to eat of that meat because idols really don't exist. They are a figment of human imagination and demonic influence, but they are not real. And so you have freedom. And so God has revealed that knowledge to these Corinthians. You've got freedom to eat of that meat. You can do that. It's logical. Think about that. There are no real other gods, and so this meat's fine. Go ahead and eat of it. Some of us, man, we, we're making decisions. It's always the logical thing, right? It's always, this is the right thing to do. You know, I've figured this out in my mind, so this is clearly what I ought to do to proceed to my decision. But it's not always so simple. As we're going to see, love trumps logic, and love trumps liberty. Look at how he goes on here in verse 7 to describe why. However, so he's saying, yeah, you can eat of this meat. You're free to do this. You have liberty to do this. However, wait a second, it is a yes, but hold on. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So he's saying this. 
you have this understanding that God is one. There's one God. There are no idols. They don't exist. But not all people who are coming into the kingdom, who have just been converted to Christ, have this understanding that these idols are no longer really real to them. He's saying that they have a weaker conscience and they're coming out of this former way of life where they worshiped idols. And this still hits so close to home. It still is such a close association to them. They, they can't quite come to that point where they're free to eat of it. And so he gives this, this word conscience. And I want to just define that for you. What, is, what does it mean that we have a conscience? Every human being has a conscience. What does it, what does it mean? You know, a lot of times when we think about this, we, 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 we think of the whole picture of the angel, right, on, on one shoulder, go ahead and show that, and then like the, the, the devil on the other side, and, and there's those voices in our heads, and we're trying to figure out what to do, and, and we think that's, that's our conscience. That, that is really not what it is. Uh, one author described the conscience as this awareness or consciousness of what is right and wrong, and all of us have it. An awareness, a consciousness of what is right and wrong. You can think about it like a rudder on a boat that helps you steer through life. And here's the deal. Your conscience is unique to you. Every one of us has a different conscience because our conscience has been shaped over the years. Ever since we were born, our conscience has been shaped by our own individual stories and our experiences. And then as Christians, through the scriptures. We all have a different conscience. Here Paul is talking about a weak conscience. He repeats that word weak five different times in these verses. So what does it mean that these new converts had a weak conscience? Well, it means that they had somewhat of a less mature understanding and of the implications of their freedom in Christ. In some ways, you could say they had a weaker faith. Now, I want to just put a little parenthesis there, because as we're going to explore some different issues that are more pertinent to us, it's not always that the person with the weaker conscience is, is a person that is immature. It could be that you're more sensitive because of your particular story, because of your background, because of your family upbringing, because of some of the situations that you've had in your life that give you a discernment that you can't do that or you can do that. But here Paul makes it clear in verse 8, hey, the issue really isn't food. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it or better off if we do. The issue isn't really food, so don't get hung up on that and how to please yourself. The issue is how are you going to interact and relate to these other believers? How will you love them with different convictions than you have? As we're seeing here in this text, love always trumps liberty. Look at verses 9 to 13. He says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So, so verse 90 says, take care, literally 
watch out. You have this liberty, this, this right of yours, this freedom that you have, but, but don't allow it to become a stumbling block for the weak. Stumbling block. Don't let it become a rock of offense, something that's going to get in the way of, of other Christians making progress in their faith. Don't be that stumbling block for someone weaker in the faith. Notice in verse 10, he says, if anyone sees you, sees you, who have this knowledge, it means that there are people who are watching us, other Christians who are watching you and your example. So as the, the stronger, often more mature believer, we need to be mindful that we're being watched and followed. And so how are we lovingly interacting with people who may have a weaker conscience. Now, the conscience is sensitive often to its former way of life. And these Corinthians who were just being converted, they couldn't separate in their minds. They, they couldn't do this without remembering that association that this meat was once used for idols that I worshipped. And so for them, this was going to, to bring them back, to draw them back to their former way of life. Notice in verse 7 what could happen, or verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now the word destroyed, in one sense, can mean that your conscience is wounded by this, and ultimately, you could go drift right back to your former way of life and destroy the faith that you thought you had. And so we've got to be mindful of this in our interactions, just like Paul is saying here to this church. We cannot violate someone else's conscience. Going against conscience is sin. And we can't lead them back to their former way of life through our freedom so that they would end up destroying the faith that they never really had in the first place. And so there's a lot at stake here. Paul says in verse 12, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ, ultimately, when you sin against a brother or sister in Christ in this way, it's sinning against Jesus himself. And so to kind of rewind this section, he says, be careful, be careful. Verse 9, watch out, be humble about the knowledge that you have and the freedom that you have in Jesus. Let it not lead you to be a stumbling block to others. You know, I wrote this down in my notes here. It's so easy to be arrogant as, as you grow in understanding and knowledge. And Paul is saying, don't use this knowledge to be arrogant. Don't look down on those who have a weaker conscience. He says it's easy to think in terms of logic. You know, it's just reasonable for me to make this decision. The way they're making decisions seems so unreasonable, so theologically in error. And it's easy to think in terms of my liberty. You know, I'm free to do this, so... I'm just going to flaunt my freedom and do what I want to do. And Paul says, no. Love trumps logic. Love trumps liberty for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ. Live in the gray with love. And so I'm asking you the question today, how do we then navigate the gray? You know, we don't deal with this kind of issue, but other gray issues, how do we deal with it? And I want to just say here are three questions that we've got to ask ourselves when making decisions, should I or shouldn't I? So here's the first question, what does the Bible say, right? This guards us from this whole idea, well, God told me to do that. 
and I see it nowhere in Scripture. So let's start with what is clear, what is black and white. Let's look at what the Bible says. And we need the Bible to, to be a filter that we run through every decision through, right? We need biblical wisdom and discernment as we look at what the Bible says about the decisions we make, should I or shouldn't I? Secondly, what does my conscience tell me? What does my conscience tell me? We, we talked about the conscience being this awareness, this consciousness of what is right and wrong, shaped by our stories, by our family history, and mostly by the scriptures, right? This means that your conscience can be trained, it can be shaped, it can be tuned by the Word of God. You're growing in the gospel over time, and you grow in discernment, and your conscience, it can change to have more of a discerning conscience when making decisions. So you're thinking about this in light of a lot of different variables, even the situation of the culture around you. You're considering the community that you're part of as this conscience is informing your decision. Thirdly, will I cause my brother or sister in Christ to sin or will I build them up in love? And this is, this is really the weight of this text is on how we relate to one another in love. So this has to be part of the decision-making process when it comes to should I or shouldn't I in a gray area. Will this cause my brother or sister in Christ to sin or build them up in love? You know, to summarize those questions, ultimately, will I bring glory to God? You know, that's, that's really the summation of this. Is, is this decision going to bring glory to God in the way that I'm loving God and loving my neighbor as myself? So with, with that as kind of a grid, and we could add more questions to that, but that's just a simple grid for us. With that, I want to apply it now to some gray areas that we face in life. And I do so with some trepidation, because <laughs> these issues... They could be a sermon in and of, of, of themselves, all right? And I got 10 minutes is what I want to take through this, all right? So media is the first one. Media is a gray area. So here's a scenario that I want you to just pose to you, all right? So you and a group of friends, or maybe it's your family, you're together, and you're trying to decide uh, what movie you're going to watch. It's movie night. And you're kind of going through the Netflix or going through uh, the movies, that are there, and you're trying to choose the right movie, and finally you come to one, and everybody seems to be in agreement, and you're real excited to finally move ahead and put that one in and, and start the movie, and yet then one, one friend or one family member chimes in and says, I, I just feel kind of uncomfortable about a scene in that movie like I remember, and I just don't think I should watch that. What do you do in that moment? Everybody else is fine with it. I mean, are you going to be frustrated and say, hey, it's no big deal, <laughs> really, it's, it's fast, it goes by pretty fast, the rest of the movie's great. Or will you defer to that friend and say, I'm actually going to fight with you and for you because your conscience is telling you right now, this might not be something you can do. And we look at what the scriptures say about that in Philippians uh, 4, uh, verse 8 might be one place we can go, if you're wondering. It says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any, any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, some who have more of a sensitive conscience will look at that verse and say, I can only watch pure flicks. 
and only Christian movies. That's all I can watch. Others who may have a conscience that is, is growing in, in, in maturity might look at that and say, you know what, I can watch other things and find truth and beauty in the midst of this fallen, broken world we live in, in the midst of the culture we live in. And we've got to discern there, and we've got to realize that's a gray issue in how we deal with media we bring in our own experiences, and we bring in our own convictions. And so that's one, media. Second one is alcohol. Now, the scenario that I want to pose to you is perhaps you are um, out with a couple friends, and you decide, I want to just order a, order a drink. And um, as you're um, sitting there, uh, somebody comes into the restaurant and you see this person's a new, new believer, and you recognize them, they're, they're at Oak Hill, and uh, you know that their story is that they came out of really a party, kind of uh, abusing alcohol background, and they just came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they're trying to give up that former lifestyle. W- what do you do in that situation? You're free to, to, to drink, to have a, a drink. Scripture says in Ephesians 5.18 to not get drunk on wine, right? That's clear. That's black and white. And by the way, some of you who have said you're a Christian and are still living in that lifestyle of getting drunk regularly, are you following Jesus? Because that's clear. We're not to get drunk on, on wine, but we can drink in moderation with an understanding of our situation. How is it going to affect other people? What's my conscience telling me here? And is it going to be a stumbling block to somebody close by? And so alcohol is often a tricky one, and perhaps even more difficult to navigate is politics. Not afraid to go there, I guess, today, huh? Um, I want to say a couple things to you about politics um, that I hope we can all agree on from Scripture. In Colossians 3, verse 11, it says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying is there's no distinctions now. There's no divisions now. Culturally, politically, socially, we are one in Christ Jesus. So let us not separate when it comes to political issues in the church. Let's not be on two different sides as though we're competing against each other. We are one in Christ. Having said that, this is a difficult issue to navigate, and I'm going to use the words of another pastor who shared this. He said this, some say that Christians should support one political party and should never support the other. Interestingly, there are people from the left as well as from the right, who talk this way. He says, I don't think it's that simple. He says, Christians have liberty in things that are non-essential, including politics. The political left and the political right both have good things to say and both have their problems as well. It can be damaging and short-sighted to think otherwise. And then he shares this story. For example, during the 1992 presidential elections, some of you weren't even born yet, During the 1992 presidential elections, a friend of mine told me about an awkward moment in his Bible study. One of the group members expressed excitement because that Sunday she had seen a bumper sticker promoting the other party. 
in the church's parking lot. She was excited because to her, this was an indication that non-Christians had come to visit. Imagine the awkwardness when another member of the group chimed in, um, that's my bumper sticker that you saw. Ouch. (laughs) It is wrong to question someone's faith because they don't vote like you do. Guys, one, one party, can we agree here? One party can't capture all of Christ's kingdom values. And and when it comes to discerning and looking into politics, we've got to realize that most of the issues that matter to us aren't political, they are theological in nature. And we ought to be striving to be a church that, that works in those cultural questions of our day. That, that, that fights for those realities that we see in Scripture, and it doesn't matter what party it's in, and to realize we're unified in Jesus. And so when we come to issues in politics, when we have discussions around these issues, I hope we can do so in a spirit of humility and grace. And even what we put out on our Facebook page matters. A lot of people are seeing that and making judgments even about Christians and about Oak Hill Church. And so we've got to navigate this in a spirit of love, a spirit of humility. Love trumps liberty. And so here's, here's how I kind of want to end here, because here's the way Paul ends. He, he doesn't just say, hey, just be nice then to each other. Just try to get along. Just love. Here, here's what Paul does. He, he always, always, always goes back to what matters most. He always goes back to the reality that we need the cross of Christ. He always lifts the debate to the highest level by showing how Christ's death relates to every moral and spiritual issue. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. The brother for whom Christ died, that is a huge phrase. It means that I treat others as my brother and sister in Christ, as family. And the cross was meant to unite us as one. In Ephesians 2.14, we see this truth for he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken down the walls between us. So let's don't try to build those walls right back up again. Christ died that we would be united. And every one of us in this room, we are weak apart from Christ. In Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That is love That is sacrificial, humble love. And we're called to love each other the same way. In John 13, 34, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I always ask that question, well, what's this new command? What do you mean by that? Doesn't the Old Testament say to love God and to love your neighbor? Well, the command is new because the demand is new. We love one another just as Jesus has first loved us. How did he love us? In the context, he washed his disciples' stinky feet, which was a foreshadowing of the cross 
Love is defined by the cross, this sacrificial, humble love for others willing to die to ourselves. And that's what Paul says should be our motivation for loving others. In Romans 15, 1 to 3, he says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. And so we come to this final verse that I want to commend to you as kind of a theme verse over this whole idea of living in the gray. Romans 15, 7, Paul says, Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's not about us getting along, being a friendly place. It's bigger than that. Despite all the differences, we must love each other. We must look to Christ and the cross because that brings glory to God. Let's pray together. So, Father, these are difficult issues that often divide us. These gray issues, they're controversial and complicated, and we need your help. And we want to look to Christ. We want to look to the cross to humble us, to have knowledge that is leading to humility and love. As we approach one another, as we live life in the gray, as we sort through some of these difficult issues, I pray that our hearts would be tuned to your word and tuned to the love of Christ shown to us at the cross. We pray in Jesus' name.